Hello and welcome to YHTV's nominated show, Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 97. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Doc. Hello, Christina. How's your life? It's absolutely dandy. How's yours? <laughs> uh, <laughs> absolutely dandy. I'm very excited about our guest today. Uh, yeah, I would think you would be. Me too. Yes. So let me start by saying greetings, everybody, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide today, along with Christina, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy in search of optimal health. Yes, we are doing optimal health today. That's why Christina. I have, yes. What do we see here? Oh, you know, I feel like a Muppet right now. <laughs> I see the magical you Muppet Show. <laughs> yeah, you obviously listened to the last episode, or a, was it a future episode or a last episode? I don't even know how to talk about that. When we talk about measles, that's an upcoming episode. That is, well, is it an upcoming? <laughs> but well, yes, I've got my mask on now as we deal with the measles. Uh, and tell me what we're dealing with. Oh, my son came back with the measles. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So okay. you followed all the advice of Magical Medical Tour? Yes, and I've got this mask that I just, so it's too warm in here, so I have to take it off again. But okay. it's, um, yes, we we definitely did, and uh, so far so good. Excellent. Everything good is looking good. And as you good say, work. the worst thing that could happen was that he would get the measles, and he did. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So ah. I would like the grand prize, please. Yeah. <laughs> you, you you may get it yet. <laughs> your grand prize move might be a rash all over your body accompanied by fever. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, my pleasure. Well, today, uh, as Christina said, we're very interested in our next guest. This is Patrick Howell. He's a positive psychology performance coach. He's a master practitioner of NLP, which is neuro-linguistic programming. He's a television host. He's a trainer, a global trainer for the Dale Carnegie Organization. He's an author. He's doing a blog, which we may talk about a little later, and so many more things. So at this time, I want to get right into our show on transformation language for optimal health. And I'd like everyone to say hello to Patrick Howell. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Dr. Woolman. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How come you're not wearing a mask? <laughs> I have to go find. I didn't know everybody was going to walk around with the measles, or else I would have. Well, it is know, on the East Coast, by the way. Yeah, that's true. It is. You know, you, know, you can get a virus on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> Do not send it to me, please, Christina. <laughs> well, welcome to our show, Patrick. It's so great to have you on board here. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really great to be here. So, if anybody wants to uh, ask Patrick a question or talk to us. Do we need to tell them how to do things? Oh, sure. Um, so if during the show, if you have a question or a comment, you can simply scroll down on your screen and type it into the comment box. Um, and if you're listening to this as a podcast, just pick up the phone and call us at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK, and leave your message, and we will be sure to get it to either Dr. Woolman or to Patrick Howell directly and respond to you. So do leave us your contact information as well. Thank you, Glenn. You're welcome, Christina. 
And we do look forward to people commenting. It always gives us great uh, things to think about and sometimes touch on subjects that we hadn't quite prepared for, which is always interesting for us. So we get to learn also. So we like that. Patrick, as the medical guide, I like to give uh, our viewers and listeners a potential path that we're going to take today. So we're going to, uh, at the beginning, find out a little bit about you and what you do and how you got interested in what you do and where you are today. Then we want to start talking about uh, positive psychology and what that means in terms of health for people. And specifically, I know that you focus a lot on language. And so I want to talk about language and how language itself can help us in our health. And then we'll go from there. We'll see where we're going. Any thoughts on that? I think it's a, I think it's a great plan. I look forward to it. Uh, just one point of clarity, and I just want to make sure I'm, uh, I'm clear with this. I'm a former uh, Dale Carnegie trainer, and I just want that so they, so they don't come after me and say, hey, I'm claiming to be a, cl- a trainer still. I'm a former uh, trainer for the Dale Carnegie organization, spent uh, about six years as a global trainer uh, for, uh, for that organization, as well as a director of corporate initiatives inside of uh, inside of their group. So just uh, I just want to throw that clarity out there. But wherever we go with this is great with me. I, language is really an, a, you know, an important part of existence. So thank you for clearing that up. We don't want anybody to have misrepresentation here. So let's talk about you. You are a positive psychology coach. That's correct. Yes. Uh, what does that mean? Um. What it really means is that I, I pull in the, the tenets or the interventions from applied positive psychology to help my clients uh, achieve the things that are really important to them. And so an, an applied positive psychology coach is really a coach. I, oftentimes when we look at uh, the coaching field, um, it, can get, it can get very muddy because there are coaches really just in about any genre. There's executive coaches, life coaches, management coaches, applied positive psychology coaches. And so in the case of being a positive psychology performance coach, what it really means is that I, I, I pull from the information and the academic research in the field of positive psychology to help my clients grow. How did you get interested in that? Ah, oh, geez, it's a it really a, a long, you know, a long haul that uh, that tied together for me. Uh, many years ago, um, Glenn, I uh, I had started a, a a a small coaching practice, really just kind of you know dabbling in. I was working as a fundraiser uh, for for an organization in a fundraising company, and this was around when I was about thirty years old, and I happened to pick up a book. I, I forgive me. I don't recall the the title of the book, but it was by uh, a fellow uh, Og Mandino, and his book really trans. It started in my transformation in life, and uh, it, it's a it's a book that's prescribed to read. Uh, you know, over the course of a year, so you read um, the same passages over and over again uh, throughout an entire year. And it's something that really made an impact on me, and it started to to shift who I was being in the world and shift my relationship with myself and then with the people around me. Then uh, from there, I wound up becoming a president of a local Toastmasters group, which is a public speaking and leadership group, and wound up picking up a whole lot of clients for my coaching practice. Then I was recruited into the Dale Carnegie organization, spent you know, quite a few years there. 
And it really was a, a kind of an organic process for me. It just, I, I became interested in, um, in the, the science behind optimal human performance. I had been in the personal effectiveness field for quite some time, but I was always one of those people who said, well, I wanted to, you know, as a participant in the classroom, I'm always saying in my own mind, well, who says so besides you? What's the evidence? And so I really started to de delve into the, some of the evidence, which makes people really live an optimal existence. Tell us a little bit about some of that evidence. What, what do you see as evidence? Ah, oh, there's, there's so much. I mean, I, I really don't know where to start, but I can tell you that uh, the, the science of positive psychology, which is a, is a science, uh, began, uh, was coined anyhow by Dr. Marty Seligman uh, during his time with the American Psychological Association. He was the president uh, of that association at one point. And what he had recognized was that traditional psychology uh, focused on fixing ailments, right? Taking, you know, working with people to help them get from, if, if we look at a baseline, baseline being zero, uh, traditional psychology worked with people who are negative one, negative two, negative three. And the entire aim was to pull them back up to baseline so that they were functioning in society, that they can contribute. What uh, Marty Seligman realized was that there was really not much out there for people who were already doing really well and people who were at baseline or above and then wanted to get to pl plus one, plus two, plus three. So he coined the term a positive psychology. And since then, there's been a ton of research, you know, on, on interventions that people can do to live a more full and satisfying life. We can talk about some of those if you, if you like, but uh, that's really the, the genesis of positive psychology. Yeah, I would like to talk about uh, some of that, for example, give us an example of that. Um, well, actually, one of his, I, I guess, hallmark research studies, or uh, I know it's attributed to him, is something that he calls three good things. And mm -hmm. the the exercise of three good things, which has been well researched by him as well as now, I think uh, Dr. Sonia Libomirsky is someone else who's really looked into this work, uh, is all around generating a sense of gratitude. But not just a sense of, you know, feel good gratitude, but really looking at, well, what does gratitude do for us? And the three good things exercise is very simple. And actually, it's something that that I do. And I certainly recommend that people can use this is that every evening before you go to bed, pull out a journal, pull out a piece of scrap paper. It doesn't matter just anywhere and jot down three good things that happen during the day. And it's really amazing what happens with that when we start to do that, uh, because if we make it an assignment, and that's where the applied piece comes. You know, I'm not a, a, a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. I work with applied positive psychology, meaning that I'm really interested in, uh, you know, how this stuff impacts people immediately, how it shows up in their world. And if we take things like this three good things intervention and we make it an assignment over a month's period of time. Then what happens is, and I've seen this working with clients literally all around the world, is if they take it as an assignment, then they go throughout their day, and like everybody else, they have sometimes crappy days. But if they know at the, at the end of the day when they're laying down to bed that they have to write down three good things, automatically throughout the day, the this, this shift happens. They start to look for positive things because they have an assignment to take on. And so it really does, you know, start to, uh, the research says it starts to help lift our optimism, um, our confidence, our sense of life satisfaction uh, for up to six months just by doing this intervention for one week. So it's really a, 
really pretty amazing. When we, that is kind of amazing. I like the concept of doing that. When we interviewed uh, Marissa Pay in one of our previous episodes, uh, she talked about doing something in the morning before you get out of bed, listing a number of things that that are good or that you want. So how do you feel about that combination, doing something at night and in the morning? Yes, I, I uh, personally, I think it's fine to do it at any time during the day. The, mm. the original research that, I, that I'm familiar with was uh, with Dr. Seligman talking about doing it, it you know, before we go to bed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I personally don't do it before I go to bed all the time because I find that, you know, I have two young boys and mm. I, I have a company to run. So by the time I get, you know, 830 at night, I'm exhausted half the time. So I oftentimes will just write it down during the day. And sometimes for me, honestly, it's not even in a compiled place. There might be just little pieces of scratch paper all around. But I know if I'm going to write it down, it keeps me focused on it. And it deals with that sort of selective attention, right? We only have a certain amount of attention span during the day. And if I'm focused on, okay, where are the good things? Where's, where are the positive things? Then they start to show up for me. They, they start to be there, not in some mystical you know, sense. But in the, the sense of that they were probably always there, I just didn't see them before. And so I, I think it's, it's fine probably to do it any time during the day. Uh, another interesting question. I guess I'm telling you that I have an interesting question. Let me be the judge of that. <laughs> we may have to speak about uh, my transformational language. Another brilliant question that I'm about to ask you. <laughs> that I don't think anyone else could think about. Uh, what about you? Mentioned your children. Do you have them do anything like that? Ah, oh, love it! I have a brilliant answer for you. <laughs> uh, my four-year-old. I have a four-year-old. His full name is Patrick Knight, but we call him Knight. And wow. I have a nine-year-old, uh, Nathan. And uh, Knight, in particular, just about every day he goes to a local daycare, and just about every day. He comes home, or I pick him up from school. The first thing that he says to me, he says, Daddy, I did three good things today. Uh, uh, so he starts off like that, and he's four years old. Uh, my nine-year-old, is, right, he's nine years old, and he's a boy. Um, he's, uh, if I, when I get him talking about it, he'll always come up with some. But he knows that Dad's always going to ask, you know, what are three good things that happened during the day? Because I really feel that, that research or not, Right, just that practice of looking for the good things in life, um, and, and looking to to generate, you know, our our good fortune by noticing that it's already there. It just has a, it's had a big impact on who I am as a person, and I want it to have a big impact on who my children are. It's mm, great. Yeah, I, I, yes, I agree, and I agree. Your answer was much more brilliant than the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank, you. thank you for that. Uh, I want to start talking about how this all relates to health, because this is Magical Medical Tour, and we want to talk about positive psychology, uh, and of course, performance is important. How, how do you see that what you do can help people in optimal health, re- achieving optimal health? Oh, I, in a whole lot of ways, and uh, I mean, the, the, the entire mind-body connection right, is, is so important. So optimal health is not just about, you know, being physically fit, although that's a huge component, right, and keeping our bodies as fit as we possibly can. It's also about, you know, having, a, you know, optimal health in our intellect. It's also uh, about having optimal health 
in our spirit, if that's something that you believe in, or our soul, or our, you know, our religious beliefs, if that's what people uh, you know choose to believe in. Um, optimal health is uh, is such a big concept. It's not you know a, a tiny little you know one little area. It encompasses everything, and applied positive psychology, uh, and the use of language, transformative language, in you know the, either from applied positive psychology directly or just in the field of personal effectiveness, certainly lends greatly to a feeling, uh, an overall sense of of confidence, an overall sense of well being. And um, I, I, just to, to, to give you an example, I work with, you know, uh, with a lot of clients and a big part of my practice is helping people to generate a sense of self-confidence in their life. And there's a long history of why I'm really interested in that. And part of it came from being on the other side of the coin, being uh, having a lack of confidence up until I was around 30. So I have a real heartfelt thing for this. Um, and, you know, when I work with people that are, you know, in the area of confidence, uh, what I find is that uh, that whole piece lends to when people can get a, a greater sense of cop- confidence and optimism, they just feel better about themselves. And if you feel better about yourself, I'd argue, I'd submit that that's probably better health right then and there, because it's not, again, not just a, about the physical piece. I, I would agree with that. One of the things that I look at with my clients as a medical guide is, and those people that have followed our show before, <clears throat> I have six categories that I work with people to achieve optimal health, nutrition, exercise, stress management, sleep management, spirituality, and patterns of behavior. And patterns of behavior, I think, is the area where we are in common right now in terms of all of the other aspects. If somebody is not doing the right thing nutritionally or not uh, something that they could improve on in exercise, we look at patterns of behavior. And one of the challenges for me always is to help people change patterns of behavior. So how do you approach people and their patterns of behavior? Because I would assume that when you see people, it's, it's a lot of patterns of behavior that are bringing them to places that they don't want to be anymore, and then they come to you. So how do you work with people to recognize a pattern and then change a pattern for the better? Sure. In, in a few different ways. And, and one of the ways that, that uh, and really the title of this show is you know, around working with, with their language. Um, I'm a, a, a huge proponent of uh, generating for ourselves language that's empowering and language that uh, that helps uh, helps us to achieve the things that we want to achieve. Uh, my a lot of my my work in my um, my study and my practice actually is looking at the connection between our language, right? And when I say language, I don't necessarily always mean uh, what we're saying to the outside world, although that's that can play a really big part. Uh, oftentimes it's the, that internal dialogue, that nonsense, that, that stuff that's going on inside the head that's, that we might say to ourselves one time or a thousand times over, but, uh, that really creates self-limiting beliefs or self-limiting, uh, you know, a self-limiting dialogue. So I'll, I'll oftentimes work with clients and actually I say for the most part, one of the first things I'll ask people are, is a question, simply something like this, I'll say, uh, to a new client, I'll ask him a question around when things don't go right during the day, uh, what do you say to yourself? 
And what I have found and what I've experienced in my own life, I mean, not even just 17 years ago when I started in this, I'm talking about even now I have to keep my own language in check, is that, uh, is that it's really pervasive when things don't go right. On average, the majority of people that I've worked with and I've talked to and personally is that oftentimes if we don't keep it in check, there's a negative thought that comes in mind. I picked up a new client recently, and the first thing I asked her is, what, you know, what do you think about what comes to mind when things don't go right? And right out of her mouth, immediately, she said, loser. Uh, now, that's disempowering language. So I'll work with clients to, to, number one, see what their internal language is, and then to slowly begin to shift it. We all are listening to ourselves, but sometimes it's in such a state of awareness that we're not even aware that we're listening to ourselves. So how do we first? <laughs> that, you're right, What's that? It's pretty, that's pretty deep. <laughs> I, I have a very deep question for you. <laughs> you are brilliant. So, <laughs> oh, stop it, <laughs> Christina. Why are you laughing? I, I got myself oh, because I'm bouncing already. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I think the question was asked. But I apologize with all this. I, I think I lost the question. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, Christina, do you remember it? I want to see if you're listening. Oh, absolutely not. No. I, I... <laughs> oh, I'll ask it again. I don't want to put her on the spot, especially if she's bouncing. She could fly <laughs> right off that ball and who knows what would happen. So basically, we're talking about two types of language. One is our internal language and one is the external language that we use with other people. And I want to get into that near the end of the show. But the first part I think is very important is the internal language that we're speaking to ourselves, that we hear in our mind. But because it's in our mind and because it's so pervasive and it's always there, sometimes we may not even recognize that that's coming from us and that it has an influence on us. How do we tune into that and recognize that influence? Yes. And, and that's really a big piece around gaining that self-awareness piece of, okay, what's really happening? Uh, very simply, I mean, there, there are a couple of things that, that, uh, that folks can actually take on and do. And the, the, probably the easiest is to carry a, a little notebook with them. And during the day when things inevitably go crappy, right? We all have, I mean, even the best of days oftentimes have, you know, little areas that are, that are, are darker. And in those moments is to just listen to yourself, is to become mindful of what is the dialogue that's happening. Uh, and, and sometimes what we'll find is that the dialogue is particular is right about ourselves. I mean, like we are saying something negative about ourselves. I'm a loser. I'm no good. Or, or I'll never have the things that I want to achieve. Sometimes what we find is that the, the, the dialogue is about other people. Oh, you know, this, oh, that jerk who, who cut me off in the, you know, in the road. What's wrong with that person? What's wrong with this person? And all of those kind of things are, is, you know, create a dialogue that's internal to ourselves that, that, that I have seen, if we don't keep it in check, steers us in the wrong direction. Mm. Uh, and again, you know, no one is perfect in this. My, you know, my own self, uh, I went through this exercise last week. Cause I was just double checking myself to see where I, you know, see where, you know, things are for, you know, the, sort of set, setting my, uh, my, uh, the, my North star, if you would. And I was asking myself, well, okay, what's my internal dialogue? And I noticed just that I live in New Jersey and in New Jersey, there's a lot of traffic and people cut you off all the time. And, you know, they're not usually that friendly about it. 
I, and I found that, <laughs> yeah, and, and I love New Jersey people. Don't get me wrong. I'm born and bred here. And I love, you know, I love the, the state. Um, the, the fact of the matter is what I found is that I had this negative dialogue that wasn't in check. Like what's wrong with these people or what's wrong with this person. And uh, so we really, and I, and I started to write it down and just so I can become aware, aware of it. So if I don't see it, right, if I don't know that it's there, then we can't do anything about it. The, if I can, the, I mean, the analogy I always use is I mentioned 17 years ago, I was the president of a Toastmasters club. Again, in Toastmasters, it's a nonprofit group and people come there to learn to speak in public and, and develop leadership skills, which is exactly why I was there. I became the president after a while. Uh, in my club, we had something called an um jar. And an um jar is just that. It's a jar like this and, you know, like an empty jar. And on the outside of the jar, it says um. And in the classroom, as you're standing up to speak, there is someone in the back of the room counting your ums. And I'll tell you this much. The first time I got up in front of the, in front of the group for a two-minute talk, I, it, uh, I, I, must, I had so many ums because we had to put a nickel in for each um, and I think <laughs> I owed $3.75 <laughs> over two minutes. Now, if someone wasn't there counting it or bringing it forth to me, showing me what it was, I would have never known. So it's the same concept, taking a notebook, jotting it down. So then it's there for us. We can see it. And then we just choose. It becomes a choice. Do I want to work on this or don't I? Uh, and that's a really empowering place to be, is to be in the place of choice as opposed to the place of a blind spot. I would think that they would make a lot more money if they had a like based on <laughs> listening to everyone like say how like they really like uh, everything that they like talk about each day. <laughs> Or a like jar would make a lot of money. Yeah. I would. I want to know. So after you find out that you have this negative dialogue, what's your next step? Uh, it it really uh, depends on the client. So there's not one you know particular step I'll use in every case. But to to give an example, I think one of the the biggest pieces is gaining that self awareness. Is pulling things. And in adult learning, we know this. We know that um, that we call them blind spots. Is that in it's like a blind spot in the you know in the in the car in the in the side you know side view mirror of the car. Mm -hmm. If we don't see what's there, then we can easily have a you know a car crash. So the very first piece is just pulling it up into awareness, and and people alone. I mean, just alone, the power and the impact and the the command we can gain of ourselves just by knowing that we have it. Because like you said, we're oftentimes we're in our own heads and we don't even know it's there. When we know it's there, there, there's, there's, you know, there's something magical that can happen, you know, uh, just in that stance alone. Uh, oftentimes, what I'll do is I'll move to to helping people recognize that if it's a self-limiting thought or belief, if it's a self-limiting dialogue, like I'm no good, right? That's a that seems to be something that's pervasive uh, in you know really across the board. I. I, I did some calculations a few weeks ago, and I uh, currently have clients in around 20 different countries around the world. And uh, out of those clients and all these places, I can tell you that everybody has these things. This either I, I'm not good enough, or I'll never be good enough. Um, but what, what I do when people are, have that sort of sense is I want them to recognize and to look at it objectively, and to to understand that there is no objective truth in a statement like. I'm not good enough. And what do I mean by that? I simply mean that there is no I'm not good enough 
out there in the universe. It's made up in language. Uh, uh, and I, uh, for example, you couldn't mail me a quarter pound of I'm not good enough, right? Mm. Because it was really, it's just something that's accepted of ourselves al- along the path. And this is where therapists come in. They help people to discover, uh, you know, where along the path that this happened. What I'm interested in is the forward application, the solution of things. Uh, so what I want folks to realize is, okay, it doesn't really exist. It's, an, it's, it's a made-up phenomenon. I, I'm not good enough. And if it's made up, and we can really uh, you know, objectively accept that, that somewhere along the line, I became the judge, the jury, and the warden uh, you know, of my own self. I accept that I'm not good enough, and I lock the bars behind me. Uh, then we can then start to, to shift and start creating new language that's powerful, that's empowering, that's transformative, that then has, you know, uh, an uplifting effect on us. So those are really the first two, you know, first two phases, actually three, is to, to recognize it, um, then to objectively look at it and know it's not real, it's just something we accepted about ourselves along the way. And then the third piece would be to then start creating and crafting new empowering language. Excellent. One of the things that I... I always work on with people is, especially if they're, we're talking about patterns of behavior, is to recognize it and then see that there are choices and then make a choice and apply it. But then one of the things that's very important, I think, is to continuously go back and make sure you didn't go to an old, back to an old pattern again. So uh, I think after you make those changes, it's good to make sure that you don't go into revert back to your old pattern. I do want to ask you a question about uh, internal dialogue also. Do you think that people that don't have an internal dialogue should begin to think about having one and cry, try and create one? I think it can't hurt. Yeah, I think it can't hurt. I, I, to, to, to be quite honest, I'm not sure I've, I've, you know, I mean, just in the line of my work, the nature is that people come to me probably with, you know, some internal dialogue. Uh, so I'm not sure that I recall working with someone who hasn't had that. But if we if we don't, then I I, I say sure because it's it's very closely related to um to the the area in, you know and the research behind priming our environments and priming right is the the concept of um you know creating a stimulus around us that then uh, that impacts other stimulus or other behaviors meaning uh, for example like a if we uh, if we want to create an environment that's you know for some folks that's relaxing that's nice that's calm we might might put flowers around the room right we might uh, you know hang you know uh, calm pictures and we all know that intuitively right it's a it's a it's a pretty common thing my mother likes to you know have flowers out on her table even if she doesn't have guests coming over because it primes her environment and i would i would suggest that that priming ourselves with positive um positive is also a tricky word, but with empowering language, language that that's guiding us in the direction that we want to go. I would suggest that, that that also helps us to, to stay on track and to achieve the things that we want to achieve. When I was a a 24 years old, the very first, uh, you know, uh, quote unquote vision board that I put together, meaning a vision board, meaning a collection of visual pictures of the things that I wanted to achieve. And I had three things on that, uh, that vision board. I had a picture of a house. I had a picture of a piano. And I had a picture of a cruise ship. And I'm not a great artist, so it had nothing to do with the art. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, 
I put this in front of me all day, you know, at my job. And within two years, I had purchased a house with my brother. Um, almost serendipitously, my father uh, called me up and said, hey, you know, hey, do you want to go on a cruise together? And mm-hmm. I wound up buying an electric piano. Why? Not because any, anything mystical. Again, it's because, I, you know, I primed my environment. It was always there for me. So even so the internal dialogue became around wanting to achieve those things, wanting to make them happen. So I would say, yeah, the long answer to your very short question <laughs> is yes, I think it's probably a, a good thing. Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, so interesting to hear you speak about this, um, Patrick, because um, though I haven't taken the courses that you have, I've studied a lot with uh, indigenous cultures and their elders, and they have always been very, very, um, they enforce language. They enforce the power of language. As It's like for them, like if you go to Hawaii, the way they pass down their history is called talk story, and everything is through language and dance, of course, and the arts. And they've always, when I first began to study with them, it was always watch the language, listen to your language, listen to what you're saying, listen to what others are saying, and begin the shift. And it's, it was such a, a beautiful, fluid motion that, that um, it because we are, well, of course, those of us who were there learning, we were there to learn. <laughs> so we came in with the as much of an open mind as we could. Now, when you are working with clients, Patrick, and you are taking them through these steps, do you find that there is a lot of defensiveness that comes up when you're working with them? Because I've encountered that with people as well. It, it, do you find that with your work? Uh, I don't. And the reason I think I don't is because I, you know, I set up the, the coaching in that way. So in other words, in order to take on the client, I truly believe that there has to be a good fit between the client and, or the coachee and the coach. Mm. So there has to be a rapport and there has to be an understanding that, Hey, heck, I'm going to give 110% of what I have. Uh, meaning that as the coach, I'm going to come in and be in an organization or with individuals. And I'm going to give a hundred, you know, if there is 110% out there somewhere, uh, then I'm going to give 110%. And, and I, and in order to work with a client, then they have to be willing to do the same thing and to, to really, you know, uh, take on stuff and to be open because that sense or that, that, that openness or having, you know, um, what uh, Dr. Carol Dweck would call a growth mindset as, as opposed to, you know, a fixed mindset is one of the platforms i think for for you know for growth in general so that's probably why i don't i can see if if you know if i didn't set my you know prime my coaching right up front to expect that and set expectations how people would could somewhat get defensive but uh but not in that not in my case i don't think as much Mm, wonderful wonderful it's it's not always easy looking within (laughs) <laughs> and listening to oneself <laughs> it's not always fun looking you know lo- looking within i i can tell you that from personally yes. you know, yeah it's not it's, not, it's no joy ride and what a continuous journey right <laughs> if if it ever ends and someone ever can figure out the secret pill to, that you know that it, that it can then and you could be successful great pass it along and let everybody else know about it if not then then we live a human existence right we we you know, we give ourselves permission to be human, as as Dr. Tal Ben Shahar would say, one of my mentors. And we accept the fact that we we just have to 
you know, we have to deal with being human and, and constantly work towards achieving our, 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 our ideal self. That's fantastic. We'll have to decide whether or not I'm human now. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to tell you guys, in just a moment, you might see me doing a lot of this, and it won't be because of anything, you know, wild or crazy. But of course, the springtime is here. And the very first um, bee that I have flying around my room is about yo big. Oh my God. <laughs> so he's over there by the window now, but I'm keeping the corner of my eye on him. <laughs> it's come, so. I just That's figured great. I'd let you, in case you see me doing it. Patrick, would you say that if, if a statement is made, it's not easy to look in? Would you, if you heard one of your clients say that, would you want to agree with that or would you want to change that? That it's not easy, like the statement itself, it's not easy to look in? Yeah, it's not easy to look in to yourself and to yes, listen I, to your own dialogue. Is that part of what you would consider that would be something that, just like I'm a loser, would that be something that you would want to address or would you just say, no, it's true, it's not easy to look in? No, in the long haul, I probably would want to address that. I probably okay. would want to address, you know, even for myself, address the the fact that you know, it's not easy is really, again, just made up language because it's just a matter of existence. It's a matter of existing, looking in. We all look into some degree, mm -hmm. right? There's probably not a person in the world who doesn't look into, you know, I don't know about sociopaths, but I think, right. you know, if you're not a sociopath and you're not dead, then <laughs> you're probably looking to some degree. So yeah, probably in the long run, I'd want to, you know, shift some of that language too, and just have it be part of the the general way of living. Before we go to, thank you for that. Uh, before we go to uh, external language where we're actually speaking to other people, I want to ask why would someone go to a positive psychology coach versus a psychologist or a psychiatrist if they have issues? What, what's the differentiation? If I'm sitting at home saying, well, I'm not making enough money, or I, I don't get enough business, or my artwork isn't doing well, or my piano uh, is not, I'm not playing well, my, something is going on. When does someone choose to go to a coach versus an actual psychologist? Yeah, well, thank you so much for that question, because I think that that really is a, a, a very important question. And uh, whether I was going a, to say that. <laughs> it is. It, it really, no, it really is. And in this field, it's a very important question too. In the field of coaching in general, uh, in the sense that that I'm not 100 percent sure that there always is a, a choice between the two. They're two completely different uh, disciplines. They're two completely different fields. So oftentimes, what I you know what I recommend clients is that if they have things that they want to deal with in the past, and they're looking for a therapeutic approach, then then they probably should engage with a therapist um, and also with a coach. It doesn't hurt to do both. Uh, mm -hmm. Coaches typically, at least from my experience in my type of coaching, are forward-looking, meaning that, that there's no, you know, I mean, of course, we'll touch on some of the stuff in the past, but I'm very, I'm, my least concern is why people think the way they do. And more, uh, more. How can we shift the way that they're behaving or being or thinking now, so that today, tomorrow, the next day, that they're they're you know having different results in their world. Where you know a traditional therapy 
uh, looks at, okay, well, let's cure the problem from, you know, from, you know, what happened in childhood, what happened al- along the way. And they're both, in my sense, equally important, but they're, they, they are two totally different, you know, two total uh, different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I want to now move toward going from the internal language that we're speaking to the external language, the one that uh, we speak to other people, the one that other people hear from us. What are your first thoughts on that before we get deeply into that? My first thoughts on the language that we give to other people uh, uh, immediately comes really to two areas. And one of the first areas is our body language, because that's, that's a part of language. And you know, as we talk, I can explain what, you know, why I, I believe that's really important as well. And then also the, you know, our tonality, how we're saying things, you know, what, you know, what kind of inflection we're using in, in our, in our voice. And there's, there's research in this area as well, uh, because, you know, we recognize that our body language, our, um, you know, how we're speaking, the way we're saying things has an impact not only on the other, other person, um, but it also has a great impact on us and, and yeah. And how we're, you know, feeling about ourselves. So I think those two areas, really, body language as well as, uh, you know, a voice tone, like, you know, uh, uh, intonation, and all of these things that, that are really important that add fabric to a conversation or to an outside dialogue, add fabric to the listener, but it also adds, you know, something granular and something really important to, to us internally. I wasn't sure when you said to us, you used the word us, were you talking about positive psychology coaches or were um, you talking about just people listening to other people probably people listening to other people yeah it's okay. more, it, it, really to everyone it's just you know when we're able to do that it adds it adds a you know a, a greater level of confidence for ourselves when we're able to, to really express ourselves in from body language standpoint and as well as voice tone and what have you so you said two things and I'm assuming you that there are three things. One is the body language, two is the tone and three is the actual words themselves. Yes. Yeah, you're right. right. The, and the words the words are very important too. The words are uh, I, I usually refer to that as the ticket the, t- the ticket to get in the ball game, right? We have to have the right words. It depends on the situation if we in business we have to have the right words um, and, and the knowledge and the expertise in personal relationships. We have to use the right kind of words, uh, and I, I, I know we're going to go here, so I'll, I'll give an example of, you know, of what I mean by the right words. Um, and and forgive me, researcher, who I'm I'm going to be quoting. I can't recall, but uh, uh, exactly who it is, but it'll come to me. And her work was all around um, Shelley Gable or Shelley Taylor. That's it, Dr. Shelley Taylor from the University of I think uh, California, and her work was around active constructive responding. And using active constructive responses with others to generate, you know, um, positive relationships, meaning an active constructive response is simply being engaged in someone else's good news and helping them to savor their own good news. Wow, Glenn, you've been doing this show for, you know, 96 episodes or what have you. That's great news. Right. How did you how did you come to, to being part of this show? How did it you know, turn out for you? Tell me more. Mm-hmm. And those active constructive responses are for what her research shows are really what help create solid lasting relationships where we all think of right, having the shoulder to cry on, which is very important having the shoulder to cry on. But uh, what her research says is actually the positive responses, the active constructive responses, 
responses to good news is really what, what bonds relationships together. That's a, a great segue for now because I want to move into language uh, between people, and usually that's what language is other than the internal language. So in relationships, how should a couple, let's say a married couple, how should they develop a language which includes body language, tone, and the verbiage, and also the response? How, what's the best way to go about doing that for a couple? Um, practice, practice, practice. <laughs> <laughs> and the only reason I say that is because when my wife watches this, that's what she's going to have to, she's going to say, you should have said, um, <laughs> yeah, she's going to say practice, practice, practice. I, I think again, it's a, one of the first steps is, is recognizing it again, pulling it up as a blind spot that, okay, the, the, if there are communication challenges, recognizing that there are communication challenges. Uh, the second piece is again to just accept the fact that we are human and not to beat ourselves up about it, but then to really get to work on um, setting, you know, uh, setting strategies for communication with each other. Uh, one of the things that 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 uh, you know I find important is having uh, uh, something that I refer to as like bright lines, meaning that you know just bright lines in communication that that either things that you don't cross over. Right, it's a bright line in the road. You just don't cross over it. Mm. Or when you see that bright line, you have a strategy, a, you know, a plan, a plan B. Right, you're approaching the, the the bright line in a communication with a you know a loved one or a significant other, and you're almost there. But that's a bright line that you know not to go go towards. To have a a point a, a plan B, a strategy, an exit strategy. Be it, you know, go down to the basement like in in my place and hit the heavy bag. Right, <laughs> or call a friend. Okay. Uh, take a walk around the block. Any of these things that that keep us from you know from crossing that bright line. It seems like saying I'm sorry is very difficult for a lot of people. What kind of uh, advice do you have, or how would you coach someone to be able to say I'm sorry? Hmm. Ah. Again, I think it's really you know. It's going to be dependent on the person and why they're having a you know a, a tough time or a challenge saying they're sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes, I, what I find is that the saying "I'm sorry" or the saying "I apologize" uh, is not as difficult for folks as it is to recognize why they're really apologizing. So, if they have their why, if they have a real reason to apologize, and they can re and it resonates with who they are. Meaning that, geez, I'm you know I'm really sorry, or I you know I I do apologize. Then just having people attached to that why, that bigger picture of why you know they apologize, can make a big difference in in actually saying the words, and it becomes a lot easier. So I think really just helping people connect to to the real reason that they're that they're apologizing. And how about the person who's receiving the apology? What should that response be? And talking about in relating to what you spoke of just a few moments ago. Yeah. I, I would say that the, the, the best response is to look someone in the eyes and just simply say thank you. You know, thank you for that. And, and then, you know, it comes the, the process of, you know, looking at, you know, where you are as the receiver of the, the apology and determining do you really accept the apology? Mm -hmm. And if you accept it, saying thank you and moving on. And if you don't, then don't say that you do. 
right? Don't say that you do. It has to be something that, you know, that uh, has to be worked through, whether it's in, you know, an uh, intimate relationship or just a, you know, a, a friend, you know, a, a friendship or a casual relationship. Not saying that we, we do when we don't. And uh, when we do, just accept it and then say thank you, a smile and go in another direction. So okay. what I'm hearing, Patrick, is, is about authenticity and honesty. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a lot about, you know, you know uh, pulling back the curtain on ourselves and trying to and working to become as authentic as we possibly can. And I say that it, it, with emphasis because I think it's important uh, because this this word authenticity is is out there now. I mean, we have, you know, Dr. Kristen Neff. We have all these people doing this research on um, you know, on authenticity and, you know, quite a few people that are touching in this field. Uh, and what I find is that for some people, when they're familiar with it, then authenticity can, can become a challenge. Like, oh, geez, I'm not authentic enough. And ah, I'm not so sure I agree with that. I think authenticity is individual for the person. And we, we, we keep on finding it in our core. We pull back some layers, peel an onion, peel the onion, peel the onion, and we start to show it. And then sometimes it gets masked. Right. Sometimes we're not authentic. OK, uh, then we can get back to our roots as long as we're being self-aware. Mm -hmm. Very powerful. Mm -hmm. I think there are a few other areas that are sometimes difficult in language. And I know that in working in the emergency department and working in medicine every once in a while, uh, I had to come out uh, out of the trauma room and go to uh, a set of parents and, for example, mm -hmm. say to them that their eight-year-old daughter uh, just died. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how to give news like that to people, either from a physician's point of view, you know, you can help the physicians that are watching this show might have that issue, uh, but from a physician's point of view, how would you say something? Or from someone else's point of view, when someone has to tell someone else bad news about, say, a death in the family? Hmm. That, that's a uh, tough one, uh, Dr. Woman. And if, you I'm not going to ask me, you easy ones, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, I know. Easy stuff. He's <laughs> trying know, to get me to bounce, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to get me to bounce in a moment. Right. Uh, that, that, that's a tough one. I don't know if I would give it necessarily advice. Uh, I my advice would become less as a coach and more as a human being, I think, and and probably you know uh, guidance that any that just about anybody would say is to try to to be as empathetic, obviously, and and authentic with giving that uh, that news to somebody else. But that's probably less as a coach and really just more as a human being and putting ourselves in someone else's shoes because. Uh, yeah, but I, I think that's probably my answer on that one. Okay, how about uh, staying in that category? Uh, somebody, uh, a loved one just died in their family, and you're calling them to say something to them. How? What's an approach that you would suggest? I, so you're you're calling someone else who uh, another family member? Is that the case? No, no. Well, not necessarily, but it could be. Let's say someone in your family just died. Okay. And I know you and I'm friends with you and I want to call you up and uh, relate my condolences. Is there a good way to say something like that? Uh, yes. And back to Christina's word, authentically. Okay. <laughs> Simply authentically. <laughs> I, you know, in language like that, my, you know, my stance on it is if we're authentic and if we're genuine, 
And if it's coming from a place of empathy, then we really can't say it in a wrong way. It can't, mm-hmm. it can't come out in a wrong way. It's, you know, if it's coming from an authentic place, then the words then become less significant. Mm-hmm. The words are less significant. Just the fact that, that they've called in there, their heart was in it is, you know, is probably substantial enough for most people. How do you tell somebody they're wrong? You're <laughs> 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 <Get> wrong. <laughs> no. No, I, I lift that, up a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Can you repeat that to the mirror, please? <laughs> yeah. I, I think oftentimes telling people that they're they're wrong, and again, it's case you know specific. So in the you know a medical operating room where you spend you know you know some of your time, I'm sure, and you know the doctor's office, people come in with claims, and you can look at at them scientifically and say, hey, that's wrong, or you're wrong. Uh, but a lot of the rest of the world and the rest of our existence is, you know, much more gray than that. So when situations are gray and we, you know, expect that somebody else is wrong, either in their factual data or in their outlook, uh, sometimes the indirect approach to telling people that they're wrong can be the most profound approach because, uh, if I were to look at you in, you know, across the table uh, in a business meeting or in, you know, just in a in an interaction and say, "Hey, you know, Dr. Woman, you're wrong. You're just wrong." Then the visceral response on your end would be to, you know, "Hey, you know, put the put the dukes up. Who is who is this person to tell me that I'm wrong?" Uh, if we can, you know, approach, you know, people somewhat in in somewhat of an indirect way, especially when the the, the territory is gray. When there is no, you know, no factual, you know, uh, you know, standing in things, and it's not life or uh, life or death, then you know we can lower that guard, lower that visceral response, and people will then allow us in more. They'll allow us in, and then we can influence them um, in certain different ways. We can influence them through, you know, a demonstration of 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 why we believe that our, our stance is right or examples or facts or statistics. But there's a, there's an old saying and um, it really does, you know, resonate with me. And it, it goes that a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. Uh, so looking to really, you know, convince somebody of, of your, your side by telling them they're wrong, they're going to be of the same opinion anyhow, because their, their, their fists are up. So approach it sometimes indirectly in a, in a more gentle approach. How about reversing that situation? And my question here is, if you're being told you're wrong, part of my question is also, when you hear that, you have that visceral response. So there's an internal dialogue that goes on in your mind. Should there be uh, a delay phase that people should be aware of between their internal dialogue and what they're about to say to someone? And that could be not only if you're told something is wrong, but if you're having a discussion, say, with a loved one or with, uh, with a friend and getting into maybe an argument, should there be some kind of a delay between what you know you want to say and what you're about to say? Yes. And I would, I would refer to those delays as cushions. Mm. So they, they, they cushion our response. And the delay could be a pause. It could be a pause in time. It could be just a uh, a few seconds. It could be a few minutes. It could be an hour, right? Whatever, whatever you know. Th- there's no specific rule to it, 
the, the delay also, or that cushion could also be a cushioning response, meaning um, that, that oftentimes right, when we think someone's wrong, uh, I can say to you, well, I hear what you're saying, but, right? That, you know, I hear what mm-hmm. you're saying, but here's my point of the view, or I hear what you're saying, however. And that but or that however really kind of, uh, you know, uh, squashes or, you know, negates uh, the fact that you just said, I, you know, I hear what you're saying. Right. I, really saying, okay, I didn't hear what you're saying, or I, you know, I don't agree with you. So oftentimes just a cushion can simply be, you know, uh, you know, I understand your point of view and have you thought about it from this standpoint? That's much gentler, right? That's, that's a much gentler approach than saying, you know, I, you know, I can understand your point of view, but Mm -hmm. when I say, but it means I really didn't understand your point of view. Uh, If I say, you know, I understand your point of view and right. And have you looked at it from this, you know, from this standpoint, People become more open. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a matter of using language to create behaviors in ourselves and others, and and certain language certainly does that. You know, Patrick, we're uh, in a modern society now where everybody's on computers and emailing and texting and uh, instant messaging. Is there any kind of uh, advice you have for people in terms of language, since it's going to be written and the <laughs> There'll be no body language. Maybe you can capitalize or you can make those little emoticon faces. But any <laughs> thoughts on how people should be dialoguing uh, through the yeah. Internet or texting or something like it's that? It's called don't. I'm not going to sound like an old fogey here. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to be the person who says, I, you know, put, the, put away the text because I'm guilty of it. I, you know, I have a... a a smartphone, an iPad, and two laptops. <laughs> um, but uh, my my greatest wisdom really will come from I think Judge Judy on this one. <laughs> Judge Judy said, uh, uh, "Say it, forget it, write it, regret it." <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, now I, I do think that uh, that we can, you know, right as a as a society and as human beings, get so caught up in just sending texts, and we all you know, misinterpret texts and misinterpret the emails. Oh, yes. uh, email is not necessarily, and I'll give a shout out to a, a retired uh, a GS-15 from the, the, the naval base here locally who I've worked with for years. Her name is Mary. And, you know, she had a huge team, ran the whole logistics department, hundreds of people mm-hmm. uh, for the, you know, for the Navy here. And she used to say that, uh, that uh, uh, email, and this, this was before text was very big, but email is not for communication. It's for information mm. and using that kind of logic that it's for information. If we really want to communicate something, get the information out and then, you know, uh, pick up the phone or stop over and see somebody if you can and have a communication about that. Do you think that our, uh, that our texting and all of the emails are having any influence on the way we then speak to people now in, in person? probably oh yes i believe that there is glenn Mm. because because you know it's like when you read something it's perspective right right so so if you're in a not such a good mood today or things have been happening and you're caught up in a whirlwind and you read uh, an email you know it could be a sensitive email about a topic you're going to read it with that connotation Mm-hmm. And I've seen it over and over and over again. Of course, from the acting community, that's exactly what we do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We read a script and we break it down 
for ourselves and our take on what is being written. Well, that's happening in daily life right now. And I have seen so much, so many uh, situations that ever <laughs> that arise and people have no idea. Well, that's not what I meant. Right, right. <laughs> you go, yeah. well, I think you better pick up the phone or just drop by. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, no, I did not know until recently that, uh, that I guess you know, the younger kids, like the 14 and 15, we have a you know, younger, younger neighbors and, you know, good friends with our, with our kids. But the, the girl is, uh, I think 14 or 15 years old. And, you know, uh, uh, kids at that age nowadays, they date completely via text. <laughs> right? Wow. <laughs> Well, that's safe. Free. They've never <laughs> met each other again. It's definitely safe, right? <laughs> but uh, it's bizarre, I think. So, yeah, it has to have an impact on. Um, I, it'll be very interesting to see. I think in you know in the in the future, uh, and to when when this is more researched, and I'm sure there's research out there now. I'm not that familiar with it, but uh, of how it really does impact because dating via text is you know, a little bizarre for someone in my you know in my age group. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking with Patrick Howell, a positive psychology performance coach, an author, a TV host, and uh, a new and upcoming blogger. And Patrick, we always ask our guests for a health tip on Magical Medical Tour. Do you have something for us? Ah, I'll, get, I'll give you two of them, okay? <laughs> a bonus. I'm gonna give you, all right, I'm going to give you two. Uh, the, uh, for me and something that I, that's worked for me and, and worked for, for clients that I've you know, dealt with, is creating rituals uh, for health, actually specific physical rituals that can help us be more healthy. This, this is the first one, and I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, I'm busy, and I have, you know, uh, I have a, a business to run, uh, so I know that I don't always get out to the gym like I'd like to. Uh, but what I do is, for myself, is I keep a, um, a pull-up bar in my office, and I keep a pull-up bar at home. And something simple as a pull-up bar, because it creates a ritual for me. Every time I walk through that certain doorway, I jump up and I do, you know, a five to ten pull-ups. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and, yeah, it, you know, it's it's again priming the environment, and then I have pu- you know push-up you know bars that I use, and I keep them around certain places as well because it, it helps me, you know, physically. But the physical aspect for me is less. I'm in pretty good, you know, uh, pretty good health as it is. Uh, what it really does for me is when I'm keeping my body physically fit, it keeps my mind physically fit and my spirit and, you know, and my, my energy and my vigor. So that'd be the first one. Create a ritual that works for you, something easy that you really can't skip by. And the second piece would be to the second tip I'd have is to practice, is to practice being fortunate. And, mm. and, and what do I mean by that? I literally mean pr- practice being fortunate. Practice uh, looking at the things that you're fortunate for. Uh, because when we really look for the things that we're fortunate for, and then we verbalize it, we tell people what we're fortunate for, we tell others, that adds a whole nother area of life. I mean, I don't know where I'd be without the practice of being fortunate, because I haven't always felt fortunate in my life. And, you know, uh, last week I'm laying, you know, uh, next to my son, I was actually laying next to both of them. And I just, you know, I just rolled over and said, you know, boys, I'm just so fortunate to, to have you guys in my life. And, you know, my nine-year-old son, he, he just rolls over and he's tired. So he's vulnerable as it is. <laughs> and <he> says, <laughs> Good timing, dad. <laughs> right, great timing. They're vulnerable. They're even extra cute, right? Uh, he, he, he just like, you know, in his tired little groggy voice says, daddy. 
I'm so fortunate to have you, mommy and, and, and brother. I don't know what I'd do without you guys. And he's nine years old. Nice. And, and then my, nine, my baby says, you know, I love you guys so much too. So it was a big love fest. But practice being fortunate. Really look for the things you're fortunate and tell other people that you're fortunate. Mm. Those, those are beautiful. And I, I think they'll make our 2014 uh, compilation of health tips. Patrick, before we got, thank you for those. They're really great yes. and, and seems like easy to do. Yes. Uh, and I'm happy that you didn't at the end of it say, but. <laughs> or Patrick, either of us say, but. <laughs> you're going hey, to notice your butt a whole lot more now. <laughs> uh, excellent. Uh, that'll be internal and external, hopefully. <laughs> Now, Patrick, before, uh, in preparing for this show, uh, I want to know if there's anything that you felt that you wanted to say that we didn't get to. This is a quick opportunity before we close. Um, I think really the only thing, the main thing I'd want to say, you know, to folks is that recognize that our language does have an impact. Um, you know, our words can in some ways create our world. And uh, when we change our words, we can change our world around us. As a matter of fact, I think that's the title of a book by, uh, by Dr. Adams or so. Uh, change your, your words, change your world, I think is the title. And I really do believe it's true. We can, we can start shifting who we're being and you know, live a more fulfilled, satisfied life. And then I also like to tell people that I started this new blog and it's, you know, it is a magneticu.com. Don't expect a lot yet because it's brand new. But if you get on the, the, the site and start contributing, it'll be a contributor's blog. Then we'll get a lot there together. That's about it. Sorry for the, the shameless plug. <laughs> Transformational language for optimal health. I'm grateful to our very special guest, uh, Patrick Howell, for sharing his expertise and wisdom with us. I would like to thank all of my teachers and my healers for allowing me to be in the place that I am today. I want to thank Christina, Yoga Hub, and Segovia for all the work that they're doing on Magical Medical Tour and with many of the other programs that are going to be coming out pretty soon. I look forward to getting together uh, next week on Magical Medical Tour where we will explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. Until next meeting, thank you very much, Patrick, for being with us today, and I wish you all optimal health. Thank you so much, Patrick. It was so much fun having you on the show. And of course, uh, to you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for again, uh, co-hosting this great production. So much fun. I just love it. You guys are, you guys are a blast. <laughs> Um, so, and of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're always grateful for your continuous support and look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can contact Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where I truly encourage you to learn about his metaphor, square breath. And also, you can contact Patrick Howell by visiting his blog site, his new blog site. Congratulations, Patrick, on uh, magneticuyou.com. And of course, you can see that um, on the, our site itself. And um, also, please, we look forward to also having Patrick on some of our other new shows, um, uh, Empowerment Through Positive Psychology and how to survive parenting. 
<laughs> so please uh, look forward. To, uh, we look forward to having him with us and look forward to having you join us. Again, we're always grateful for your feedback. Give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And we will be sure to pass your comment or suggestions on to our guests. As well, uh, please leave us your contact information and we will keep it confidential and be sure to get right back to you. Until next time, namaste. This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. To browse their catalog of more than 150,000 titles and download the free audiobook of your choice, go to yhtv.us forward slash audible. Sign up or log in with your Amazon account and start enjoying your new book today. So there, there are actually two different virus, viruses. They're a little bit similar, but the, the measles that we're having the outbreak with is called, it's a rubiola virus. Hmm. And the German measles is a rubella virus. And you've heard the word rubella. Most parents have heard that word when they have to hear about vaccinations for their kids, where they have that vaccination, the MMR vaccinations, which is measles, mumps, and rubella. So they mm -hmm. call them mm -hmm. the measles that they